0: Omega Tau. Science and engineering in your headphones. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Omega Tau. Here is another aviation episode. We haven't had one in a while, which is, of course, not allowed on Omega Tau. So we are delivering. (laughs) Uh, There's more in the pipeline. So this one is about um, the KC-135 in its X and S versions, the Cobra Ball and Cobra I. The airplanes are basically used to um, monitor uh, re-entering nuclear warheads and the launch of missiles. Um, They were and are still used um, by the US Air Force to monitor the missiles and warheads of other nations, primarily Russia, and they have been uh, doing that uh, regarding the Soviet Union all through the Cold War. And our guest, Robert Hopkins, has been flying one of those. And um, as you will hear in the interview, um, I learned about uh, these aircraft in the um, 1980s, and I was uh, fascinated by this task ever since, also because they fly from a not-so-pleasant environment on the Aleutian Islands. And uh, Well, you'll you'll hear of this uh, during the conversation. Very nice interview. Um, I I loved it, really. It's a a (laughs) a very interesting topic for me. So, um, I have no other preliminaries, and so we can go ahead with Robert's introduction.
1: Well, uh, my name is Robert Hopkins. Uh, The reason we're visiting today is because of my prior experience as a reconnaissance pilot flying out of Alaska and conducting missions on behalf of the Cobra Ball and Cobra I ballistic missile defense program.
0: Exactly. And the the reason why, I guess I saw your Twitter account somehow where you talked a bit about this, but, but interestingly, uh, in the, I think, 80s or maybe early 90s, I was a subscriber to World Air Power Journal and there was this great article about Cobra Ball and Cobra Eye and I read it. At least three times and turns out <laughs> turns out you wrote this <laughs> uh,
1: yes John Lake had asked me to do a piece uh, I think Rene Francion uh, did as well and so I wrote that recollection and curiously uh, the squadron the 24th and later the 45th reconnaissance squadrons used that as a uh, a placard whenever they would take the airplane to an air show and they would cut the pages out and put it on a board, and uh, people would read that and find out about it. So uh, um, I'm very pleased that it had um, a little bit of traction, and Volume 8 is one of the hardest ones to find. I'd I'd like to think that's because of my article, but... (laughs) who
0: knows yeah so in other words this uh, this conversation is another one in these this little series of me re- revisiting my childhood after getting to sit in an F16 a while ago so it's it's moving Ooh. forward <laughs> not flying just sitting ah yeah so the flying part is uh, future work all right <laughs> so uh Give us a bit of, an, of a high-level overview of that mission and uh, your involvement, and then I'll take it from there, and we'll talk about it in detail.
1: Certainly. Um, really, uh, beginning with the uh, launch of Sputnik in 1957, the United States was trying to find some way to get an understanding of uh, ballistic missile technology in the Soviet Union. Um, in the mid-1950s, the, this was limited largely to ground radars in Turkey to try and track the missiles, uh, pick up any telemetry as possible. But they really needed some kind of aerial telemetry collection to get closer, uh, particularly as the the ICBM went up into the air and out into the atmosphere. And so a program called TEL-2 was developed, and that was uh, using three B-47s that had been modified first by Boeing and then by Douglas, and those had um, uh, antennas on them that could pick up the telemetry. And there were two electronic warfare officers who sat in the Bombay, and they they recorded this, and they studied the signals. And that data was then sent back to the United States for further analysis. Really, the, the central weakness of the TEL-2 program was the lack of any kind of optical sensor capability. And what that meant was... Uh, Even if you gave the co-pilot, for example, a handheld camera, the distance between the TEL-2 and the ICBM was so great that you couldn't really take a meaningful photograph. So um, what the Air Force and the Department of Defense and the intelligence communities decided to do was create an optical capability. And that resulted ultimately in the um, Nancy Ray program which was a, essentially a brand-new KC-135 that carried not only the telemetry recording equipment, but a variety of optical cameras, and that was designed to film as much of the mission as possible. It wasn't really practical to have that at the launch area, which the TEL-2s did from Turkey. Rather, it was decided to base the Nancy Ray out at Shemya Air Force Base at the tip of the Aleutian Islands, because the Soviet ballistic missiles would land in the Kura test range near Kaluchi on the Kamchatka Peninsula. So that's really the origins of the program, and it went through the JKC-135A Nancy Ray, and that was redesignated the RC-135S Wanda Bell, and then that was redesignated the Cobra Ball program, and the mission became Burning Star, and uh, there's a lot of iterations there, but that's the historical motivation to find out more details about the Soviet ballistic missile system and to do it not only by collection of telemetry, but through optical and what they now call measurement and signature analysis or masda
0: mm-hmm. So telemetry would be to basically eavesdrop on the amount and ideally content of the communication between the missile and the controlling station on the ground?
1: Yes, that's correct. Um One of the really good examples, uh, aside from the technical data that it might download, of course, it's encrypted, so then you have to decode it. But it might be something, oh, as far as um, the burn rate on the propellant inside the rocket, uh, that's obvious. One of the more interesting telemetry collections uh, took place using the TEL-2, and they were actually able to listen in both voice and telemetry on a program related to the first Soviet spacewalk. And they actually were able, using this telemetry data, to determine the physical and the mechanical processes by which the capsule would be pressurized, the hatch opened, uh, Leonov would go out into space, then come back in, close the capsule, and then repressurize it, all based on the telemetry collected by the Tel-2. Mm-hmm.
0: And... As the program progressed and um, the aircraft launched from Shemya, um it became um, basically more a focus on the reentry vehicles, right? Because the, the the missile itself, well, I guess parts of it would reenter too, but that's I guess maybe not so interesting.
1: Well, um, you're you're correct about that. the The primary issue, of course, was to determine the capabilities of the ballistic missile, and there were. Launch area researchers, uh, mostly, as I said, the the radars in Turkey, um, in the early part of the program, late 1950s, um, there was a U.S. naval presence in Pakistan, and they attempted to collect this material as well. But that program is very poorly documented, and we don't really know a lot of the details about it. So it became very clear that despite wanting to know more about the ballistic missiles, the real issue was uh, whether or not they could hit the target. Mm -hmm. And if they could, what would they hit the target with? So it became essential to collect what's called uh, re-entry phase or terminal phase. And that for many years was the primary mission of the Cobra Ball. More recently, um, you've been able to see that uh, the Cobra Ball has operated from bases in England, for example, and that raises, (laughs) A, a very interesting speculation that it's now capable of collecting boost phase intelligence as well. So that that's simply speculation on my part and hasn't been confirmed by the Department of Defense or the Air Force.
0: Okay. A- as you would expect. I mean, why would they confirm? <laughs> Secret. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> um do, do you happen to know where these names come from? Nancy Ray sounds like female uh, nickname, Wanda, Bell, the Cobra, then different. Do, do you have any idea where these came from?
1: Right, right. Uh, those those are all very historical and part of the legendary history of uh, the, the program. Uh, F.E. O'Rear, who was the head of the big safari program at the time, which did the modifications on the Cobra Ball, Um, needed to come up with some code names. And so he chose the names of daughters and wives (laughs) and uh, people that that he knew. So uh, uh, Nancy Ray started it out. Uh, One of the other airplanes in this program, the RC-135E, was Lisa Ann. Uh, So if you look at some of the other uh, big safari programs, they have interesting names too. But uh, COBRA is a U.S. Air Force intelligence uh code name first words. so there's cobra dane cobra ball cobra judy cobra i those are all related to ballistic missile technology but there are others like cobra talon cobra mist those are radars and uh cobra talon actually is an airborne component but um, the cobra part is the general name for the program and the actual operational order which describes the mission is uh, in the case of the Cobra Ball, it used to be called Burning Star. Mm-hmm. And for the Cobra Eye, it was Burning Vision. And of course, that's all declassified. Yeah. And I'm sure it's changed at this point. So I, I have no ability to even speculate on yeah. what that could be.
0: I think I read somewhere that there is in the DoD this basically computer program that can generate random, not very meaningful code names. Because they shouldn't be meaningful, right? But these right. these these female names, they they for me they, they they didn't fit that schema. That's what I was asking.
1: Exactly, exactly. And those those are from Effie O'Rear, yep. who was the, okay. the the father of Big Safari. Yeah. And and they're they're very they're special. If you uh if you look on the web you can find people like King Hawes and his website and uh it's the story of Wanda Bell, Nancy Ray and Lisa Ann. And that's more passionate. Than just talking about Cobra Ball. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, um, and you mentioned uh, Cobra Dane and Cobra yes. Judy. These were ground-based, really big radars, also, right? To to record. Right, right. The Cobra
1: Judy was actually um, uh, ship-based yeah. on the U.S. NS Observation Island, and that has since been replaced. Cobra Dane is also on Shemya, and it's undergone multiple iterations and is just still a huge radar and. It's been the source of some contention. There were folks in the um, arms control community who thought that it could be used as a battle management radar, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, no, that, that fell to Pave pause and some of the other programs that were more internal to the U.S. Uh, Cobra Dane has a very narrow observation range, so um, it. it it aims specifically at kluchy and and the reentry area there and has very little capability for any kind of active combatant purpose
0: yeah, at least um what you can see from the outside if you look at the building it doesn't look as if it can be aimed and moved much, so it really looks like a very stationary thing, looking into a particular direction as you as you say.
1: Right, right. The radar is, is immobile, but it's it's now phased array, oh, yeah, so there okay. is the ability to, to steer it. But again, that radar beam is a very narrow path. It's also designed—one uh, of the concerns was uh, during uh, 1983, when the Soviets shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, uh, there was a concern that the that Cobra Dane could have tracked the 747 and the Russian interceptors, uh, the dane has been programmed to not look at anything moving under say mach 6 mm-hmm. because it it's just discriminated against all of those so a you don't get birds you don't get airplanes you get only what you're looking for and those are reentry vehicles buses decoys and things like that
0: okay all right so um you mentioned various different aircraft, um, and we can we can revisit those, of course, but they're all based on the venerable KC-135 all-purpose big airplane, right? <laughs>
1: that that's correct. It was um, uh, the very first one was brand new, 1491, which became the Nancy Ray, uh, was delivered from Wright Patterson. It had about 50 total flying hours on it mm-hmm. and underwent a modification at that time. And, uh, it's it's really the grandfather of them all.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and the KC-135, for people who don't know, is um, basically, well, I was going to say the military version of the Boeing 707, but it's the other way around, right? I mean, the KC-135 was first, and then it became a civil uh, 707.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, they both shared a common uh, ancestor right. in the Boeing 367 eighty and the KC-135 was was built before the 707 and in fact Bill Allen repeatedly told his employees we're here to build a jet tanker transport mm-hmm. and that's our number one mission yes it has commercial applications but that's secondary and in fact it led to considerable uh, tension over the construction of the 707 because the DOD, the Department of Defense said, wait a minute, you guys are benefiting from all this technical knowledge on production and normally you'd have to pay for that out of pocket. So uh, there were a few months where, in fact, the program was in danger simply because of this co-production issue.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this idea that military research somehow uh, is a subsidy for commercial development that has been a long-standing issue between Airbus and Boeing in Europe and the U.S., right? So that's, that's not a new thing.
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: Right. So, and um, in terms of the sensors for the Cobra ball, for, not for the historic uh, predecessors, but for the Cobra ball, I, I assume there is cameras with basically big telephoto lenses, telescopy kind of things?
1: Uh, that has evolved over time. Uh, it's it's really not possible to say there was one set of sensors. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it it has gone from uh, infrared cameras, multispectral cameras, optical cameras, uh, uh, IR sensors uh, to devices that are really uh, somewhere in that nebulous space between a, a camera or physical optics. And digital sensors, so mm-hmm. um, uh, it it has varied over time. And my experience from twenty plus years ago, thirty years ago, is uh, such that it's entirely different now. It's it's all digital and yeah. uh, far more sophisticated.
0: I mean. Uh- one comment here is that this is probably the most uh, secret-slash-sensitive part of the mission, so you, you might not be able to or willing to talk about this in detail, obviously. Um, but there are two things, I think, that were particular. One is that the the right wing, the side on which the cameras or whatever sensors were looking, was painted black. So that suggests there is something optical going on.
1: Uh, right, right. And and that's that's also part of its legacy. Originally, the wing was not painted black, but someone decided, uh, and I believe this is not actually from the Cobra Ball program, but from uh, some of the uh, other programs that the Air Force was using to study its own rockets. Wow. And that was because the wing was natural metal rather than the, the gray that we're accustomed to seeing today and there was glare off of that. So they painted the right wing and the right engines black. Over time, the sensors were um, improved to the degree that they could discriminate and eliminate the glare. And simply out of tradition, the right wing remains black. Mm. And even today, it's still black. And it's interesting to note that all the Cobra balls are now ambidextrous. The sensors are on both sides of the airplane.
0: Ah, Okay, that simplifies mission planning, I guess.
1: Exactly. It it no longer requires, as we used to have to do, uh, a special timing track to make sure that at the appropriate moment we turned in a direction that pointed the sensors towards the uh, reentry vehicles. And and that way uh, you would collect on them. But it also limited the amount of time because if, if there were a lot of events happening, you might actually run out of time and have to turn simply due to the proximity of the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah. So nowadays the wing is black so that uh, the community at least gets a little bit of that coolness of these black airplanes like the SR-71, U-2, F-117, you know, real cool stuff is is black. So I guess then that's the reason for the wing.
1: <laughs> that helps. It's, it's also a signal that the airplane is part of the national technical means of verification. Mm-hmm. So uh, ah. it, says, it says to the world that this is an NTM and uh, we're, we're here because we're supposed to be here.
0: And that is in the context of treaties like SALT 2, where the treaty says that every party is allowed to kind of, quote, spy uh, on the other to verify uh, compliance with the treaty. And so that's what these NTMs, National Technical Means, are, right?
1: That's correct. And in fact, um, with all the discussion currently about the termination of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, the Cobra Ball was intimately involved with that because of what was – held in Section 3 of the treaty, which was uh, you can actually what's called shoot to destruction. You can launch a a missile from a known test facility to a known uh, reentry facility and have it monitored. And so there were 72 uh, Soviet SS-20 Sabre IRBMs that were launched from uh, Chiba and Kansk in the Soviet Union towards Kura. And the Cobra Ball collected on on many of those. And that was perfectly legitimate. In fact, it was an official means of verifying that they were being destroyed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, I remember the B-52H had their wing route modified so that satellites could distinguish that from the G model because only one of them was capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And so that was another means of demonstrating what's going on to es- essentially simplify verification.
1: Right, and and those were um, uh, the wing fillets to demonstrate what was uh, Alcom and and other capabilities. So yeah. um, uh, you're exactly right there. Uh, the black wing now is both traditional; uh, it's a legacy presence, and it it is also highly influential in terms of saying uh, I have a right to be here. Right.
0: So the other thing I wanted to briefly mention in, ter- in terms of sensors, um, I don't know uh, on which of the airplanes, but. Some of them have these what looks like towel rails on the on the side. These are obviously not uh, optical sensors they are i don 't know what they are do you, do you have any idea uh,
1: those are the uh telemetry ah. uh, receivers and and they have evolved over time as well there There used to be the Uh, three towel racks on on the right side of the Cobra Ball and one on the left, and uh, eventually those were removed. And uh, during what I would call the the middle period of Cobra Ball's existence, they were all in a single array located underneath the four large optical windows on the right-hand side. And then today um, the Cobra Ball has what are called the E-systems, or LTV, uh, which is now L3 communications, yeah. uh, it has long cheeks that are very much part and parcel of what people think of with the, the rivet joint program. Um, the telemetry is contained within those. The telemetry antennas, yeah. receivers, are contained within those cheeks, and they do not have, i underlined this three times, the the sensors that the rivet joint has. They are simply the same external uh, fairing over a different set of receivers.
0: So basically, the engineers decided to use the same aerodynamic fairing because that simplifies flight testing, right? Uh, Exactly. um, So what is rivet joint?
1: Rivet joint is the uh, combination of the old uh, office boy, which was uh, KC-135 converted for communications intelligence collection. Uh, That comment program is fully declassified and uh, the big team RC-135C ELINT, Electronic Intelligence Program, um, the Air Force said, you know, we're we're flying all these missions and they're doing different things, but on the same day, why don't we combine them into a single platform? So uh, they decided to build what was called Rivet Joint, which combined uh, ELINT and comment. And that produced really the the major player in the U.S. Air Force uh, uh, intelligence collection program. Uh, for many years up through Desert Storm, Rivet Joint was associated with the uh, now declassified Burning Wind mission. And it would visit places like Meldon Hall and mm-hmm. IELTS up in Alaska and Kadena in Japan and fly peripheral missions to collect both ELANT and COMET. During Desert Storm, the rivet joint proved its worth as a combat asset in terms of supporting both air-to-air and air-to-ground and ground-to-ground operations. And since then, the pressure has been on rivet joint to fulfill tactical support Mm -hmm. roles. Unfortunately, there's still the demand for the strategic roles, and they've built three more uh, rivet joints for the U.S. Air Force, three more for the Royal Air Force, and the the numbers are are still not enough. The airplanes are just in massive demand today.
0: Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between the Cobra Ball and the Cobra
1: Eye? Both airplanes have essentially the same airframe, and the difference is in the mission. Cobra Ball is sponsored by the U.S. Air Force, and its its goal is to collect on ballistic missile technology for evaluation and, and definition. Cobra I, on the other hand, was sponsored by uh, the U.S. Army and the Strategic Defense Initiative Organization, SDI, mm. uh, popularly known as Star Wars. And the difference in the mission was that the uh, Cobra Eye collected with a very different sensor that was designed to detect uh, not only uh, incoming warheads, incoming buses, which would hold the warheads prior to release, but also things like stealth warheads, decoy warheads, and any other kind of junk, but do so on an infrared basis and then be able to use that set of data to develop discriminating tools to destroy the warheads prior to re-entry. So, two different missions.
0: But uh, am I getting it wrong that both were flown um, out of Shem- Shemya? And- no, no,
1: that's correct. Okay. In fact, I flew I flew both of those missions. Right. I, in fact, I flew the very first Cobra I mission in August of 1989. Um, so, the the missions were, the airplanes were flown by the same organization, the 24th Reconnaissance Squadron. Okay. We were, we were based at Eielson. We would deploy it for two weeks at a time out to Shemya. And if a, a opportunity arose, we would launch and complete the mission. So, um, it was, uh, two different missions, effectively the same airframe. We, we, took a, a test to make sure we knew the differences between the two because there were some slight variations that uh, mostly the pilots needed to know. The backenders, the Ravens, were the experts, and, and they were the ones that knew the sensor system very well inside and out.
0: Right. And uh, so uh, these were not un- single airplanes, right? There were multiple t- instances of each type.
1: Well, there was only one... X model the cobra i there was okay. only one of okay. those four one two eight and that's that's now f- still flying but as a cobra ball and uh four one two eight was uh, we we'd like to say that it was the single most expensive airplane in the history of aviation because there was only one so you mm-hmm. couldn't stretch out it was about 1.4 billion dollars in in 1990 and uh we would joke uh you know dad i'm taking the the cobra eye out for a spin bring it back you know full of gas because (laughs) if if you broke that you broke a lot of money there were um, uh, four cobra balls 1491 and then the three sixes 662 663 664 and of those 1491 uh, ran off the runway at shemia in 1969 and 664 crashed in Shemya in 1981 so there have been four of those and one Rivet Amber
0: okay Rivet Amber was the training no no I'm
1: sorry Uh, Rivet Amber was the RC-135E Lisa Ann I should have been clear about that Uh, it was renamed uh, Rivet Amber and uh, there were There was a single trainer, 3121, and that crashed in 1985 at Valdez while performing uh, a missed approach. And uh, subsequently, there were all kinds of changes, and and there's now uh, uh, three trainers in existence Mm -hmm. today Uh, a TC 135S and two T C one hundred thirty
0: five W's. And we'll talk about the challenges about flying up there in a moment, which explains some of the accidents. It's not like you were right. bad pilots. <laughs> um, seems to be. Yes. Um so I saw pictures um of some of these airplanes, don't know if it was the ball or the eye um, with the original low-bypass, noisy, smelly, black smoke engines. And there are also um, pictures with the high-bypass bi- engines that are also uh, can be found on the KC-135R. So have they been re-engined at some point?
1: Yes. In fact, um, they've gone through three different engine types. Huh. Uh, the one that you saw with the the J57s was uh, 1491. That was the original um, uh, very first, the Nancy Ray Wanda Bell uh, Rivet Ball, and that had basic water injection J-57 engines on it. Uh, when it ran off the runway in 1969, part of the reason it did so was because it, it hydroplaned and needed additional stopping capability. When they chose to replace it, they were able to get ex-military airlift command um C-135B transports, those had TF-33 turbofans, which were, at the time, (laughs) the closest thing to high bypass we would have. (laughs) Uh, But they also had thrust reversers on them. So the choice was optimal to convert that. So 662, 663, and 664 uh, arrived with thrust reversers, as did uh, the Lisa and the Rivet Amber uh, 137. And those were used until uh, beginning in the, the late 1990s. The entire RC-135 fleet, not just Cobra Ball, but the rivet joints and the Combat Scent, were all re-engined with the um, commercial CFM-56 military designation F-108 engines. So you'll see them today with the, the big motors on them, and that's where they are and it it has made a significant difference both in terms of performance, takeoff, uh cruise It's also reduced the requirements for uh, multiple air refuelings yeah. on many missions.
0: They're much more efficient. Yes. Um last question before we move on to the actual mission there. Um talk a bit about the Lisa N. Um it, it, it seems to have had this huge radar in, in the in the uh in the fuselage, which was I think blamed for the breakup of the airplane in the air, right?
1: Well, many people have blamed it for Ah. that. Uh, Lisa Ann uh, was an interesting airplane because uh, they needed some capability. Think of putting a Cobra Dane on an airplane to track incoming devices.
0: Cobra Dane is a big ground radar.
1: That's absolutely correct. So what they did was they took a huge radar that is The same radar, if you look back at photographs of the old original CV-65, the Enterprise, with that square island, that's the same radar that they wanted to put inside the Rivet Amber. And so to do that, they built a, uh, it wasn't really flexible, but they built a special uh, external fairing to cover the fuselage where the radar was placed. Very few people know this, but... um, they actually extended the length of the fuselage by about 18 to 20 inches Hmm. to accommodate this. So that airplane is the only KC-135 of any variant that is longer than all the rest. Once they wanted to try and put this thing in place, the radar equipment weighed so much, they just, they, they couldn't figure out how to do it. So they put dry ice on the floor, they put the radar system on it, and they pushed it into place And as the dry ice evaporated, the radar plunked down into place. Unfortunately, it was slightly off, so they they had to wiggle it around a little bit. But the purpose of that radar was not to collect anything, but right behind that, if you ever look at photographs of the right side of the Rib uh, Amber, the Lisa Ann, you'll see a a window, a circular window. Mm -hmm. That's for the ballistic framing camera system. And the radar was slaved to the BFCS, which then directed that camera to track the reentry vehicle. So it was a pretty basic idea, and it required tons of power, and in fact, more than the airplane's four engines could produce in terms of electrical capability. So they stuck an extra pod under one wing, which was an electrical generator pod, (laughs) a Lycoming jet engine, and it produced electricity but also cranked out massive amounts of heat. So under the other wing, they put a heat exchanger and a cooling pod. And this led to reports of a six-engine KC-135. okay. So there weren't six engines. There were four, but there was an external coolant and an external power generation. Now, the ribbon amber, as it was known, uh, flew often in conjunction with the rivet ball, and, and both were really successful. In fact, the, the rivet Amber, the Lisa Ann actually was the first U S asset to verify Soviet MRV, multiple reentry vehicle capability. And right after that collection that went straight to Henry Kissinger and he used it in his diplomatic studies and efforts with the Soviets on arms agreement. You raised the question of the loss of Lisa Ann. Well, that, that has been a subject of considerable contention, and a program called Project 19, which honored the 19 men who were lost on that airplane, uh, really has dug into that far more than even the Accident Investigation Board. So to briefly summarize, the day prior to its loss, the Ribbon Amber was on an operational sortie, and it encountered severe turbulence. And it returned to Shemia, landed, and the maintenance people said, we think the airplane has suffered perhaps some structural weakness in the area of the vertical stabilizer because of this turbulence. And we would like to repair it. The people on the ground went back and forth. Do we fix it here, do we send it back to Eielson? Well, it's safer to fix it here, but we don't have the right people and, and equipment. Well, it's it's better to send it to Eielson to get it fixed, but there is some risk involved. And the risk won over conservatism, and the Rivet Amber took off and, and headed off to Eielson. Shortly thereafter, there were radio transmissions. Irene 9-2 was its call sign, and the recordings are, are pretty straightforward. You know, we're experiencing problems. Then there's a transmission that says, crew, go on oxygen, which indicates that in the 135, you have a rocker switch. If you press the top of it, um, you, you talk ah. on the radio. If you press the bottom, you talk on the intercom. Yep. So obviously, they pressed the wrong button. So there's an indication that there may have been some kind of structural failure, which is what has prompted this general belief that it was related to the the radar uh, antenna area. Well, um, in the rest of the 135 community in 1969, um, the airframe was undergoing a, a major change called PACER FIN, where they were doing significant structural repair work to the vertical stabilizer, one three seven, the the rivet amber had not yet undergone this this modification, and so my suspicion, and I think this is concurrent with the Project Nineteen findings as well as the Accident Investigation Board, was that there was um, a loss of the vertical stabilizer, and at that point the airplane was marginally flyable, and yeah. there there's additional. T- Tones that occurred after those two first transmissions, which indicated that there was still an airplane airborne and it was transmitting um, a radio signal briefly. Um, I, I think that's that's the conclusion. So it was not the antenna or the, uh, the radome over that. Rather, it was the prior severe turbulence that had overstressed the vertical stabilizer, and my guess is that the, that separated, and the airplane eventually lost control.
0: All right, okay, that's bad. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Okay, so let's talk a bit about uh, a typical mission. I mean, not the mission in general, but a flight. Um, how, sure. How did how, how that went? Um, maybe. I mean, we'll talk about the flying f- challenges from Shenyang a bit later. But I guess you should somehow we should start with telling people where. Um, where Shemya is, because probably nobody's ever been there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, to my surprise, a lot of people used to go there because uh, it's at the tip of the Aleutians. Uh, there are what are called the Rat Islands, and boy, it is a rat hole. It's it's n- no place you want to go for vacation. Um, there are three major islands. There's Shemya, there's uh, uh, Kiska, Eilid, and then um, the Coast Guard Station, uh nearby. And that's designed to be close enough to the, the Soviet Union to reduce the amount of, of flying time. Um, you could launch and be in position in about 30 to 45 minutes. Depending oh, so on that. quickly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, it's, it's the farthest you could get in terms of uh, being in the United States and still, in fact, a good indication is that when people ask me, you know, what's the northernmost state in the United States, obviously Alaska. Well, what's the westernmost state? Well, Alaska. What's the easternmost state? Well, it's also Alaska because Shemya <laughs> and the rest of the Aleutians are on the east side of the international dateline. Right. So Shemya is like 175 east. So uh, it, it's it's an amazing location to be able to perform this mission. Yeah. But it's, it's a horrible location. It's at the confluence of the Bering Sea and the Northern Pacific. So it's got bad weather, miserable weather. And during the 40s and 1950s, it was actually a stopover point for airlines like Pan Am and Northwest that would fly Boeing 377s, the Stratocruisers, from, say, Seattle to Shemya to refuel and then from Shemya to Japan. So... Um, it it used to be a garden spot stop for airline passengers, mm-hmm. but not anymore.
0: Yeah, luckily. <laughs> so, since we're talking about the flying, uh, let's continue there and do the mission next. Um, so, you so so you mentioned Eielsen before, right? Eielsen is a, a quote normal airbase. Alaska. It's
1: pretty much in the, the center southern part of the center of the state. It's at 26 miles southeast of Fairbanks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, in fact, it used to be called Mile 26 Airfield. And it was uh, uh, sort of secondary, Ladd Airfield in uh, Fairbanks was the original field used for lend-lease transports and early Cold War peripheral and overflight missions took place out of Ladd. But Eielsen uh, had a lot going for it. It's got a huge runway, uh, 15,000 sort of feet, and uh, it it's in the middle of nowhere. And what a perfect opportunity to provide a home base for the airplanes.
0: Right. So that's that was your base camp, I guess, with major maintenance hangars and stuff. Um, right. I think it's also where today they run um, Red Flag North, right, or whatever it's called. Green Flag, I don't absolutely. Know. So, right. Okay. Cope yes.
1: North and and yeah. Red Flag North, um, Elmendorf, uh, which is down in Anchorage, ah. is just not well suited to host the wide variety of people. Plus, it's also quite a range uh, distance from the ranges where these these missions take place. So. Right. Uh, uh, Iilsen's perfect now for for Coke North and uh, Red Flag North and everyone's familiar with the cool colors on the aggressor F16s up there and um, nice nice place to have business. Yeah.
0: Okay, and so so you went then f- from Eielsen to Shemya for uh, I guess period of whatever, 2 weeks or something. Right.
1: So, we would uh, typically re- rotate on uh, Tuesdays or Wednesdays, and the crew that's going out uh, would get in the TC 135. Uh, in our case, it was, was tail number 4133. And it's about a three and a half, three hour, 40 mission, uh, mission to fly out to Shemya. And once you got to within about an hour of Shemya, you'd call and ask for the weather. And if the weather was good, you'd continue. If the weather was bad, you'd hold. And if the weather was really bad, you'd probably go home. But mm-hmm. uh, by and large, uh, you'd fly out there. Um, you'd typically um, land, drop off the uh, all the crew getting ready to leave, or excuse me, getting ready to arrive. Uh, they'd unload their gear, and uh, chances were fairly good that there would be a short trainer mission there at Shemya. Mm-hmm. Uh, pilots need to get current in takeoffs and landings and instrument approaches. And if the weather was tolerable, we would then fly for an hour or two there at Shemya, uh, land, and then hand the airplane over to the crew going home, which would then take off and make a a, a beeline back to Eielsen with a load of dirty laundry.
0: Mm-hmm. So the Cobra Ball and I airplanes would stay in Shemya unless there was major maintenance. They did not commute. You used the TCs for that.
1: That's that's correct. We would also use uh, KC-135s from the Alaska Tanker Task Force, which was also at Eielsen. So uh, pilots and navs were uh, double qualified, both in the RCs and the KCs.
0: I guess for a pilot, that shouldn't be a big difference, right?
1: Um, there were minor differences, but nothing significant. The airplanes handled the same. Yeah. Uh, the differences were uh, power, of course, because the the RCs had the TF-33s. The KCs at the time still had the J-57s. Uh, there were a few of us who were uh, triple qualified in the KC-135R, but it was um, not something that the Air Force wanted pilots to do. Uh, there had been an accident or two, or incident associated elsewhere throughout the command of pilots flying one type and, and misremembering takeoff data or something yeah. of that nature. So um, it it was part of the time when we really don't want you to be triple qualified.
0: Yeah. And on those computer trips, did did you need refueling, or did that was that possible with one uh, load of gas?
1: Um, They were easily flown without refueling, but during the uh, flight out to Shemya, if we were in the TC-135, we would typically uh, get air refueling training. Mm -hmm. We didn't need any gas unloaded, but we would get some practice uh, with contacts. Uh, If we had a new pilot on board, for example, or a new nav that needed to practice the rendezvous procedure, then that would be a a training requirement rather than an operational or a deployment requirement.
0: So talk about the challenge of landing uh, on uh, Shemya uh, and and the weather that made that a challenge.
1: (laughs) Well, um, you know, pilots talk about being able to land in bad weather and, and they talk about fog and they talk about wind shear and they talk about severe crosswinds and they talk about gusts. But they very seldom talk about all of those at one time, simply <laughs> yeah. because if you have fog and wind, the wind blows away the fog. Well, at Shemya, you have all of those at the same time. So um, there, there are two runways there, 2.8 and 10. And runway 2.8 is particularly interesting because as you cross the, um, the landing lights there, um, you're, you're right over a perpendicular beach. And so you get a massive crosswind gust at that point, And you also run into severe wind shear at that point because of the, the turbulence associated with this, this little cliff. And so uh, that's always a challenge. The crosswinds at Shemi are such that uh, the maximum allowable for the 135 is 25 knots at 90 degrees across. So as you fly the approach, winds aloft could be significantly higher and we we would just amaze people who had never been there before because we would be in such a crab as we flew down the ILS to land that you would look out the pilot's left window or right window and (laughs) see the runway ahead of you. And if you look straight ahead, you saw nothing because the wind was moving the airplane in that direction. So that was always a real challenge. And in fact, Um, the requirements to land at Shemya were very strict because of uh, prior accidents. And as a consequence, uh, there were times when we'd return to Shemya after an operational sortie and would be told, the weather's too bad, you you can't land. So um, there have been... uh, Incidents associated with the weather at Shamia, one of the TEL-2s, the EB-47s that, that temporarily operated up from there, um, had a, a takeoff incident. And everyone thought he was going to crash. It, that airplane has very poor crosswind capability. Yeah, because it has it,
0: bicycle bicycle main, main exactly, gear. Right? Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. And and fortunately, the pilot got it off and damaged, but they flew it back to Eielsen. And then uh, 1491 uh, landed on time, on space, but between the time it was cleared to land and the time that it actually touched down, uh, the runway had gone from suitable to unsuitable. And so John Acor, the aircraft commander, uh, tried to slow it down. The brakes wouldn't help, so he shut down the outside engines, one and four. That didn't help. And as he was... Getting close to the end of the runway, he realized that if he couldn't stop, and he ran he real, re- well, I'm not going to be able to, uh, he would have run into the approach lights of the opposite end, and that would have led to an explosion burning up the airplane, possibly harming or killing the crew. So he turned off the runway and, and ran off into a ditch, it broke the airplane in half, but It didn't burn, and there were no injuries. So uh, that actually saved the program because they kept all the equipment, and they were able to quickly put it into a new airframe. In 1981, uh, another airplane, the 664, was trying to land on runway 10, and it was slowly getting below the approach Uh, azimuth, and below glide slope, below glide slope, uh, you know, come up, you're below glide slope, and uh, unfortunately, they were unable to do that, and they hit the approach lights, and then a a lip to a little drop-off in front of the runway. The airplane slid off to the right of the runway, broke up, and uh, much of it burned, and five people were killed outright. Another person perished uh, a day later after being rescued, Um, and That has really been the call. There's variations in history, but at the time, it required 2,500 hours and an instructor pilot to be an aircraft commander in the Cobra Ball, simply because of the requirements to ensure safety and and flying maturity.
0: Okay. So um, how long was the runway in Shemya? Or is? I guess it still is. Yep, still is,
1: 10,006 feet, and it's 150 feet wide. So it's it's kind of narrow. Um, SAC used to have uh, sort of a monopoly on 300-foot-wide runways, and uh, because it's only hundred feet, 150 feet wide, um, some pilots didn't appreciate that and thought that they were uh, higher than oh. they actually were, and so they'd slam it down at the end of the runway. Uh, yeah. Once or twice, and you'd learn. It, it, you get used to it
0: right and is that is that a short runway for the kc-135 or kind of okay if the weather isn't too bad
1: yeah uh, it's it's tolerable um, the only real conditions that make it unsuitable for landing it's perfectly fine for takeoff because the operating weight plus fuel of the airplane was such that we calculated uh, uh, you're always going to be able to Take off, and if you lose an engine and have to abort, you'll still be able to stay on the runway. Right. So it was always Category Two or better. But in terms of landing, if you're landing at Shemya, you need to add additional speed for gusts, and you need to add additional uh, runway lengths for runway condition. And there's some small conditions there that that could indicate you know you, it's just you don't have enough runway to land. And that actually happened to me on one occasion, uh, which led to our longest, my longest flight of 20.2 hours because <laughs> uh, we were supposed to go to Shemya and drop the airplane off and come back. But Shemya was closed for the day, so we flew out to the area, did a mission. Got a tanker, came back to the area, flew a tanker. So we were really burned out. We came back to land at Shemya, and the weather was out of limits. So we had to fly back to Ileson. So uh, (laughs) nobody brought food. Nobody brought water. uh, So we broke into the survival gear on the airplane and, uh,
0: you know, and I'm sure you had to fill in some kind of paperwork to explain why you uh, ex- you know, went over cr- whatever crew flight limits or something.
1: Right. Uh, 18 hours is a normal crew duty day. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, to to our chagrin, we as we were about an hour out from Shem- Isleson, We called and said, hey, you guys, we're going to land. Come on. Be aware of it. We're all tired. We're all burned out. And as we were turning final approach, um, there was a, another Cobra Ball uh, navigator who was actually flying a little Cessna for practice, and he was in front of us on the ILS. And they said, uh, "Cobra Two One, uh, can you go into holding to let this Cessna land?" <laughs> and I said, <laughs> "I said, no, no. We we've been up here for twenty hours. It's it's." We need priority to land. Right. And the uh, the Cessna guy said, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, I'll break out. So we, we landed, taxied to the parking space, and darned if maintenance didn't know we were coming. And so they went to the wrong parking space to get us. And so we sat there for 10 or 15 minutes waiting for everybody to show up. But uh, it it reflects the personal commitment of everybody in the program. Uh, even when things are going to heck in a handbasket, uh, everybody really was able to pitch in and get the right thing done.
0: Yeah. So, um, a few more questions about the landing. There was an ILS in Shemya, right? So, you didn't have to do it visually.
1: Right. Uh, they had uh, runway eight had an ILS and a localizer, so yeah. that worked out. They also had a PAR, Precision Approach Radar. At the time I was there, Runway 10 had a microwave landing system, an MLS, plus Whoa. the PAR. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, believe it or not, there were days at Shemya. My very first trip to Shemya, when I arrived there in a tanker, it was clear and calm. And and everyone said, you'll never see this again in your lifetime. So uh, <laughs> it, it varied. But um, we could make visual approaches, but by and large, uh, because of the weather, uh, the winds were the real stickler, especially crosswinds. Yeah. Uh, we had a regulation on base that uh, if the winds exceeded 50 knots, you couldn't even open the hangar doors <laughs> because at, higher than that, they'll rip the doors off.
0: Yeah. Um. When you say there was a precision approach radar, that meant that somebody would talk you down basically. Yes, okay, yes. Right. Um, did you have wind shear sensors at the time, or did they even exist at the time?
1: No, right. no. Um, in the 135, uh, there is an angle of attack indicator, and for many years, that was never really maintained very well. Uh, I was happy to say that they were maintained on the RCs, and I used that as much as I use my airspeed indicator, because as long as I had a good angle of attack, uh, I could ignore the rapid variations in airspeed. But if the AOA started to go up, then I knew I was beginning to push the lift on the wing so I could increase the power to slow the descent and then pull the power back rapidly to avoid overspeeding and wobbling through the yeah. descent on the glide slope.
0: Today's uh, sensors, I guess, use LiDAR or whatever to look a little bit ahead and and then some some voice shouts at you to go around because of um, wind shear. Um or you you, you you get a report from the aircraft landing in front of you. Of course, usually you didn't have one, right? So you were the only ones. So none right. of that worked. Yeah. So in other words, also you made, mostly did Navy arrivals instead of soft landings, I suppose.
1: <laughs> well, there were two reasons for that. One, um, it, it wasn't always easy to try and put the airplane down. You wanted to be on the ground in the first 2,500 feet of the runway yeah. uh, to make sure you had stopping distance. Secondly, if you if you landed very firmly, you dissipated a lot of energy, and it also put more weight on the wheels, and then you could quickly pull up the, the speed brakes, and that dissipated the lift on the wings. Because if the wings were still busy doing their thing, you were vulnerable to uh, crosswinds and that's not what you wanted. So, no. um, yeah. you know, people would complain. We had a rough landing at Shemya. Um, it, it's the closest you can get to an OK-3 OK wire without being a naval aviator. <laughs> okay.
0: So, so how was life uh, on Shemya? What was there anything to do? No. There
1: was plenty to do oh. if you were motivated to find it. There was there was a lot of history that you could enjoy. You could uh, people would drive around the island and. Uh, explore the old World War II sites. There were P-38 remnants there and B-24 remnants there. Um, there were old bunkers uh, because during uh, World War II, there were concerns that um, the base would be attacked by the Japanese. Um, and th- there were also sort of creative things to do. Um, the Some of the clubs were the double dip club, which means that you would jump into the, Pacific Ocean on the Pacific side of the island. You drive around to the Bering side and jump in there and and, um, there was uh, what was called beacon riding and there was an old rotating beacon on top of Hangar 3 and so you would (laughs) climb up on top of the hangar and jump up on top of the beacon and ride it around in a circle. (laughs) um, uh, The place was filled with foxes. Uh, The Russians used in the 19th century would throw these foxes off boats offshore of the islands. The foxes would swim into the island, and then the Russians would come back in, in six months or a year and collect however many had bred for their fur. So they were everywhere, and you know, some people up on the third floor would lower a fishing reel down to the, the ground and put food on it, and a fox would grab it, and they'd see how far up they could reel the fox <laughs> to get it up. Um so uh those were some of the crazy things, but uh, by and large, uh, crew members uh used time away to work on either professional military education um, i I wrote my first k c one thirty five book sitting out at Shemya. Uh, There were weight rooms um, in fact, I used to go out with uh, my nav and we would use the weight room and then we would jog from one end of the runway to the other so um, it it was a way to um, sort of get away from the world. But by the same token, you left your family and friends behind. And, you know, you'd be sitting at Chemia, and the weather was bad there, but the temperature might have been 40 degrees and blowing snow. Back home at Eilson, it was 50 degrees below zero. And, you know, your wife's car had died and she was stranded somewhere. Yeah. So everybody in the squadron who was back at then would pitch in to care for your family while you were out at Shemia. Right.
0: Mhm. And in terms of supplies, there were probably regular supply flights coming in bringing fresh food, fresh food because I guess there wasn't much growing in terms of groceries on Shamia, I suspect.
1: No, in fact, we brought our own food. Everyone huh. had what was called a rock box and so you would put in um like extra athletic clothes, uh salt, plates, uh things that were non-perishable and as you would go out for the your two-week period, you'd bring a large cooler, and that would have frozen food in it or uh, perishables, and there were kitchens in which you would cook and prepare your own food. Uh, there was a small—we uh, called it Macy's after the department store in New York City. It was a small base exchange, and they actually made some pretty good pizza there, but uh, um, it it also had some— really subtle advantages, uh, there was an old dock where a supply barge would come in twice a year with huge supplies of fuel and other things. And on occasion, crab boats that had collected Alaskan king crab would dock. And if if you knew they were coming, you'd rush to the, the Macy's and you'd buy two or three cases of beer, some adult magazines, and you'd get a garbage can and you'd go down to the dock. You'd give the boat people the beer and the adult magazines and they'd fill your garbage can with Alaskan King crab. <laughs> so um, that that was a rare occasion, but a treat nonetheless. So yeah. shame could be really boring, but there was a lot to do if you knew what to do.
0: Mm-hmm. How many people were on Shemya at any given time, typically, like pilots, crews, base, whatever, controllers?
1: I would say several hundred total, because uh, there were both military and civilian people in terms of the Cobra Dane. Uh, There were military and civilian people who ran the base. Uh, There were other programs beside uh, the one that I was involved in with the Cobra Ball and the Cobra Eye. At the time I was there, there was a program called Queen Match, which has since been declassified. And that was essentially to do what we did, except they wanted to get an image from above the reentry vehicle. So this was the second stage of a Minuteman 2, and it was supposed to launch and drop a sensor to be able to detect what was going on from above. That that never happened. Uh, it, it was sort of a disaster waiting to happen. But um, there were a lot of civilian contractors who came and went. And in fact, in addition to the military aircraft, Reeve Airlines would fly a 727 or a Lockheed Electra in every now and then uh, to drop off civilians or personnel who were being assigned to the base. Mm-hmm.
0: So your commuter flights with the one thirty fives didn't bring in a whole aircraft full of other people who also would work on the island. It was really the, 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 the Cobra crews.
1: That's correct. We okay. we did not provide any transport for non Cobra mission related personnel. Okay.
0: All right. So now let's talk about the mission. <laughs> so, or a mission. How, how did you get alerted? Who, who would who would know that a, a Soviet launch was about to happen and tell you guys to launch?
1: During the early part of the program, a lot of that was just guesswork because mm-hmm. the Soviets weren't going to tell, and um, <clears throat> it was based on uh, really guesswork, satellite imagery, um, intelligence, that sort of thing. By the time arms agreements were in place, the Soviets agreed that they would provide uh, roughly an hour's notification uh, to uh, the United States of a planned missile launch. So that information, and this is now uh, fully declassified. In fact, if you go to the Defense Special Mission Center, DEFSMAC, Um, They're the ones that have, uh, they're part of NSA, the National Security Agency. They would uh, get this information, and then they would alert the crew at Shemya that there was an imminent launch. Now, I use the word imminent only to indicate that it was a possibility. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a guaranteed deal. So uh, the crew would... uh, generally be doing whatever they happened to be. We could be out jogging, cooking dinner, asleep, um, and then the horn would go off. So the duty crew, there were two crews there. The duty crew would be uh, putting on their flight suits, running out to the airplane, which was in a hangar. They'd jump in the airplane and they had 15 minutes from the time the horn went off to the time they had to be airborne. So um, the airplane was pre-positioned. They would back it out, start the engines, um, and then taxi down to the end of the runway and launch. And this was all done radio silent because originally the Soviets would put trawlers off the periphery of Shemya, mm-hmm. outside the territorial waters, but they could hear. So if you'd hear on the radio, uh, Cobra 2-1, you're cleared to taxi, then that was an indication that the U.S. was going to monitor the launch, so the Soviets would cancel the launch. <laughs> instead we did this all radio silent the only transmission was the co-pilot saying uh hangar number and weather so it'd be six weather and that was so short so unexpected and the weather people were used to broadcasting the weather in the blind so uh then we would know the winds and and temperature for takeoff data once we got to the end of the runway uh we'd turn on the landing light, and then there'd be a green light from the tower, and off we'd go. So once airborne, then our goal was to get to the area as rapidly as possible and determine, while in route, uh, the validity and the potential for an actual launch.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, So, and you did that uh, How? I mean, what what information did you get uh, beyond? Um, I guess you didn't want to talk to the guys on the radio because that would break your radio silence. So... Well,
1: we didn't actually have to use the radios. Uh, we had satcom, oh, and ah. so there would there, there would be data uh, showing up on the satcom. It was mostly information that was um, uh, not relevant to the pilots, for example. Yeah. Um, so the the tactical coordinator and the Ravens and back would would say, all right. Um, DefSmack has informed us that this will likely be a launch from Placetsk, maybe an SS-18 Mod Y, um, and that would help the Ravens know exactly how to configure their equipment, what frequencies it might be on, uh, that sort of thing. And I don't have the expertise to be able to describe, uh, nor really even the clearance to explain what they did. Uh, During this portion, when we were climbing out, there was always the possibility that the Soviets would have launched prematurely. Mm -hmm. And that required what we called a turn short. And you would actually, um, while climbing out, you'd you'd turn south to get the sensors pointed in the right direction and hope that you collect something rather than nothing.
0: Because you weren't as close as you'd want to be, but you had to fly south because the sensor looked to the right.
1: That's exactly right. So uh, turn short was an uncommon, but it was something that crews prepared for because um, that way you had to be ready quickly. Uh, you couldn't just say, well, we've got 30 minutes of cruise to get to the area, so I'll just sit here and have my box lunch in yep. advance. Um, so crews were very committed to getting the mission done. Right. Ideally, though, we'd fly out to the area. Um, in our sensitive area was east of the Kamchatka Peninsula and we were at least 40 nautical miles offshore, and in fact, um, that made sure that we were clear of the 12 nautical mile limit. So at no point did the airplane come within any distance of anxiety in terms of what the Soviets would think. Um, We remembered that a lot of Soviet intercepts during the early Cold War were because Russian radar was not good enough to tell the difference between, say, 12 nautical miles and 15 nautical miles. Mm-hmm. So uh, to, to avoid any potential issues, um, we use the standard which has since been declassified. John Kennedy specified this in 1961, and it has remained official, and that is 40 nautical miles offshore. And so we would orbit waiting to hear what happens next.
0: All ah, right, you'd orbit basically at the, in some sense, northern edge of where you wanted to be, and then if something would happen, you could fly south, pointing the sensor to the right.
1: That that's correct. So okay. it, we we drilled holes in the sky. We you know <laughs> flew a, a racetrack and. Uh, as we waited to hear sometimes nothing would happen absolutely nothing we'd be airborne for 6 hours and and well looks like they canceled it could have been a false alarm it could have been a trick it could have been uh, a technical issue with the launch facility or the reentry facility and and the only thing we would bring home is what we called a tuna patrol you know right. we brought we got zilch today there is <laughs> nothing there so that gave me a, actually a lot of opportunity to look at, at Kamchatka, and I was very intrigued by the geography. You could see the volcanoes, mm-hmm. and and it was a really rugged place, and you kind of feel for the people that lived there. It's worse than Shemya. So um, it, we would just wait until we got an indication that there was a launch, and that would come in the form of a, a message called X-ray, and you'd hear X-ray, 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 and um, that meant that you had roughly half an hour twenty five minutes to anticipate the reentry, so we would work on our timing uh we'd climb up a little bit to you know improve the clarity of the air, especially if there was any low cloud cover, mm-hmm. and then, at the appropriate time, turn south so that the sensors were pointing in the right direction and uh, If you were lucky, you brought home the bacon if not you you know were a paper bag over your head and that was that
0: because i mean you didn't really exactly know where um the um reentry vehicles or the missile would come down i mean generally you do although that's why you were in that area but even though they did not cancel you you just might not be able to see stuff
1: well i i think once you launch the ballistic missile had, unless you use maneuverable reentry it its destination uh. is pretty much predetermined by by Newtonian ballistics so right. Good point. um yeah so with that in mind you knew that it was going to hit the cluchi area and so whether it was a mile to the left or a mile to the right at 34,000 feet, it sure. didn't really matter. So um, the sensors were wide enough in terms of aspect that you could collect over a wide lateral horizontal distance.
0: Okay, so if they launch and if your equipment wasn't broken and if you hadn't uh, didn't have to return because of whatever out of fuel, then you usually would collect.
1: Well, that was our hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. So in terms of fuel, um, so the tankers were not at Shamya correct?
1: That's correct.
0: So then they um, would probably launch from Eielsen. Um Correct. So they would have three hours to get to your uh, uh, orbiting waiting area. So right. So that, that you would have to do quite a bit of pre-planning in terms of when you would alert the tankers to come and bring you some fuel.
1: That's correct. In fact, um, if, if there was an, uh, an operational launch and if we had a specific launch anticipated, we would typically launch and collect, and if that was it, we would come home. If, however, there were launch windows, meaning any time between, say, 8 a.m. and 11 a.m., there could be a launch, and then again between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. there could be a launch, we would not have sufficient fuel to stay in the area that long. And that meant that as soon as we launched the Strip Alert tanker at Eielson, in the Alaskan tanker task force would be launched and they would fly out to give us fuel. And, um, one tanker was normal. Two Mm -hmm. tankers was really unusual, but if you had a long day or multiple windows, three tankers is what we called mega death because you were, that's a lot of time out in the area drilling holes. So, those usually ended up in, like, 15 and 16-plus-hour missions. And,
0: yeah. I mean, on the on the positive side, you'll have hours to log in your logbook, right? So that's always good. You get experience on paper. But,
1: Absolutely. But, but it must I, have been I, boring. Oh, well, it was. And um, it, on a personal note, it taught me that I did not want to be an airline pilot because <laughs> – um, I, I just sat and watched the autopilot drill holes in the sky and, you know, it, it didn't provide that Chuck Yeager, Thunderbird, blue angel, red arrow kind of yanking and banking. Uh, but on a personal satisfaction level, what we did, uh, to me was far greater than anything that a fighter pilot, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of grief about this. Uh, we, we did something that mattered in terms of, making the world a little safer by eliminating the intermediate nuclear forces. And, and that was reward more so than yanking and banking at red flag.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two two different perspectives, right? One is the the, the joy of the flight while you do it. And I'm sure the yanking and banking is, is more exhilarating there. But the other thing is like looking back, did I spend my day in my years doing some, something sensible beyond enjoying myself while I did it? I think that's where, where your perspective... Perspective, you know you were you were on real missions i mean you didn't shoot obviously but it was a real right. mission to to do something in the world as opposed to practicing for things that at that time usually never happened
1: that's correct in fact i i had a lot of uh, personal mirth associated with that uh, with some of my classmates uh, uh, who flew f-15s and and you know they talked about going to red flag and going to the petting museum there at Nellis and, and what they would do if they encountered a, a MiG 23 or a MiG 29. And I, I'd ask them, have you ever seen one? And they said, <laughs> no. And I said, well, I see them every day. And my daily mission is to look out the window and, and as did many of my colleagues as far back as the B 47 days. And e- even today, uh, You're familiar with all these intercepts um, that that take place. Uh, We saw Russian airplanes on a routine basis. And, uh, you know, I remember my first intercept. It was a MiG-31. And it was like, oh, my gosh, look at that. There's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. But in reality, he was just doing his job. We were doing our job. We waved to each other, uh, you know, flew together for a while. And that was that.
0: Yeah, when you uh, today you often read in the newspapers or in you know, a general media that uh, you know a, a random Russian interceptor harassed a U.S. Um, uh, reconnaissance airplane, and I'm wondering, are they actually really more aggressive today, or is it the same story as back in the Cold War? And today the press is somehow reporting it differently. Eh, I don't know.
1: I think it's I think it's the latter. It's it's my personal opinion. It's the latter because. Um, it, back in the day, they, they shot at uh, recon airplanes. They shot them down. They um, they were very, very aggressive. And they, the goal was for the Russian airplane to make the reconnaissance airplane go home. But yeah. the reconnaissance airplanes didn't. They stayed their ground. In fact, in November of 1970, um, an, R- an RC-135 was uh, off of um, the Soviet Union, and a MiG-17 fired its cannon. And the crew of the it was the cobra jaw and the crew said well so what and they just kept flying uh they completed the mission and came home and there were decisions made afterwards to terminate that particular route but nowadays um it's it's not even unsafe the the russian pilot behaved in an unprofessional way well we have to remember that these are military crews not businesses they're not airliners yeah. and and they're not out there to be polite to each other the russians don't want these airplanes there and so they're willing to do anything short of an overt act of violence yeah. to make them go away and and we need to simply realize this is day-to-day business for the our our, our favorite patch is one that says recon is my life danger is my business
0: mm. So, did you, when you returned to Shemya, and the and the weather looked bad, I guess that would be another reason when a tanker would come and get you, so you'd have enough fuel to return to Ilesin. I guess.
1: Um, actually, we didn't have to do that. Our return to base protocols stipulated that uh, we would leave the area with a certain amount of fuel, and that would allow us to get to Shemya to orbit for a period of time, and then fly unrefueled back to Ilesin if need be. So. Um, we we really didn't need a tanker to get home because we would not leave the area without sufficient fuel to at least make two or three tries at Shemya and then head home.
0: But that's just another way of saying if you had to stay uh, – okay, what you're saying it's not weather-dependent. But if you had to stay long enough at the collecting area, then a tanker would come in any case and it would be calculated in a way so that you would also be able to return to Eilson. That's, yeah, that's yeah.
1: correct, Yes
0: so you had two navigators why was that uh,
1: that was to verify the position of the airplane uh, and to do so uh, both with the technology our airplane had a litten uh, stellar inertial doppler system on board and the nav one uh, was the master of that and uh, that was really very precise when it was was shooting like a bandit as we used to say and uh, you could position the airplane within about 6 to 12 feet of its actual location. Mm If the LN-20 was not accurate for some reason, uh, we had a second navigator on board who used traditional navigation methods uh, to plot our position so that we would verify, A, that we are where we think we are, and B, provide additional reassurance that we are not potentially violating any foreign airspace.
0: So stellar inertial Doppler. Stellar is clear. It's basically pointing at known stars and measuring angles. Uh, And that's an automated system, of course. You wouldn't use a sextant yourself. Um, Correct. And uh, inertial is also clear. It measures accelerations and integrates twice to get position. But what does Doppler mean in this context? Uh,
1: It's just an additional capability. It's the... the, uh, movement of the airplane Uh, i don't have the expertise to explain doppler radar but uh, oh so it was radar
0: based okay so it would it would basically look at the ground and and uh, recognize how fast it passes by and then integrate up i guess or something like that i don't know
1: right and and of course that was always a challenge over
0: water but yes um, exactly right yeah there was nothing you could distinguish to uh, compute the doppler shift that's Uh, correct and because there was no gps at the time right we didn't have GPS. Uh,
1: they had effectively installed it uh, by that point on the the RCs uh, out of Offit, and that had given them the capability. I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember us using it uh, beyond the uh, Litton LN20, and then mm-hmm. eventually, I think after I left, uh, by ni- mid early 1990s, the GPS was in place.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, that was at the time when the receivers weren't quite as cheap, but uh, I remember during the Bosnian uh, uh, NATO mission in Europe, the the German uh, tornado crews, which didn't have a GPS installed at the time, they just bought those Garmin GPS units, put them on their (laughs) knee, and, you know, so because there was no VORs and stuff down there for them to use. Right. So... Is this mission, Cobra Ball and I, still going to still flying today?
1: Well, the Cobra I mission came to an end in 1991, I think. Um, right. The FBI went away, so uh, they parked the X model and said, we're just going to leave it here and decide what to do with it. They were going to make it a trainer, and then they said, no. Um, the demand for Cobra Ball, not just in terms of Russian, but the proliferation of Iranian. Um, North Korean, uh, Indian, Pakistani uh, intermediate and intercontinental ballistic missile development uh, d- put a real demand on the Cobra Ball program. So there's now three of those, uh, 662, 663, and 128. And and they're all flying and, and staying very busy right now. Um, they have the uh, deployments to IELSON to monitor Kluchi they have deployments to Kadena to monitor uh, any kind of potential Chinese operation or North mm-hmm. Korean, so uh, they're still very active today.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, you obviously flew these things in your career, uh, what, what else did you fly, uh, how long did you fly the, the S and the X?
1: Well, I, I flew the um, S and the X from uh, 1987 through 1990, uh, and so that was way back in the Stone Ages. Uh, prior to that, I flew um, a variety of, of tanker models and EC-135s while stationed at Grissom Air Force Base, um, and uh, the tankers were both... Uh, regular tankers as well as the uh, special receiver tankers. They were prior reconnaissance or airborne command posts that had the receptacle in the top. So we flew some special missions with those. And then the EC-135s that I flew were part of the radio relay component of the post-attack command and control system packs, mm-hmm. which the at the time, the heart of that was the looking glass that operated out of off it. And then from 1990 to 1991, I was at Offit flying the RC-135D, W, and the U model. And most of that time I spent in Saudi Arabia after uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And I took part in Desert Shields and Desert Storm and flew combat reconnaissance missions there.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, basically your whole career was 135 all the time, but different models and different missions.
1: Right. I flew 17 different variants of of 135s. It's
0: probably the only airplane from which you can even say that there are 17 different variants. (laughs) Maybe the 130.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You're exactly right. The the C-130 is the the closest. In fact, uh, there are 84 135s. Uh, different variants and uh, almost that many 130 variants
0: (laughs) okay which of these missions uh, was the most interesting one i mean i guess tanker flying is also lots of uh, boring holes in the sky
1: Um, it can be but you get really really busy in fact my very first tanker sortie was uh, a fighter drag of f-16s coronet thud over to to norway and i remember you know trying to give this guy his gas and he said no you didn't give me the gas i said well yeah we're showing we've given you the appropriate amount he says well i have a digital totalizer on board and i'm saying well i don't have that and my aircraft commander said hey we got a brand new co-pilot up here cut him some slack you know so um <laughs> you you really it gets insanely busy because you're trying to get through clouds you've got wow. uh, chicks in tow and you know we think of of Tanker business is is dull and boring. Uh, Curtis Lemay had it right that says you know without tanker guys nothing works.
0: No, I mean that's clear. It's it's that it's crucially important. There's a great bu- a good book by the way called Tanker Pilot. I forget the yes, Mark
1: Serra's book. Yes, yeah,
0: very good. Um, so it's, it's clearly uh, it's clear that they're important, but that doesn't necessarily translate to a lot of flying fun. But you, you said it was busy as well.
1: It, it it could be very busy. On a on a routine trainer you'd take off and and you'd fly, you'd do a nav leg, you'd do air refueling of a B fifty two and then you'd come back and practice landing. And and that was peacetime every day. But during the the nineties and the two thousands between Bosnia and red flag at home and everything going on in the Middle East and Southwest Asia. Um, one of the chapters of my revised 135 book on the tankers, the title is, Without Us, the War Stops. Mm-hmm. And and that is absolutely true, not only in terms of mission requirement, but in terms of the commitment the tanker crews need to make things happen. So um, I, I think the days of, of speed boredom on board the tankers is, is long gone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, you probably want to say something about your book. <laughs> um.
1: Well, um, I, I'm very pleased to say that um, uh, the second edition of my book on the KC-135, uh, it's called "The Boeing KC-135 Stratotanker: More Than a Tanker," mm-hmm. uh, has has been out since. Uh, 2017 in hardback, and it's twice as long as the original, which came out in 1997, 20 years earlier, and I'm really very optimistic in saying that uh, if you want to learn more about any of these missions, whether they're the RCs that I flew in Alaska or the test beds or any of the others, that uh, it would make for some interesting reading.
0: Definitely, and I will definitely uh, link to the book uh, as part of the show notes. Um, So we're getting uh, close to the end. Um, What did you do when you left the military? You probably did not become an airline pilot, I guess. You're exactly right. (laughs) Um,
1: I I went back to school. Uh, I earned my Doctor of Philosophy degree in History from the University of Virginia, My dissertation was on Strategic Era Reconnaissance and the Evolution of U.S. National Security Policy from 1945 Mm -hmm. to 1960, and that's been published as well as a book called Spy Flights and Overflights, and and that's available for people that might be interested in reading about that era. And uh, so very briefly, I taught history at Creighton University and then uh, relocated with my family to... uh, Dallas, Texas where my wife was involved in some healthcare priorities and I went to work for a healthcare organization and, and retired there and now uh, write books on aviation
0: history. Okay, cool, interesting. Well, um I'm out of questions uh, unless you have some funny anecdotes to to tell about your flying. I guess we're getting close to being done.
1: Well, the only thing I'd like to add is as sort of a caveat, and that's to say that everything that we've discussed today has been uh, based on open source information that mm-hmm. is released by the Department of Defense and the Air Force, and that at no time have I discussed anything that might be construed as classified or uh, not releasable to the public. So uh, I want your listeners to make sure they know that um, although they, this is as close as you can get without being there, um I, I haven't told anything out of school that should not be released.
0: Right. That's that's good to know. Um so we so the both of us don't meet in some prison somewhere.
1: <laughs> I, I, exactly. My 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 interest in the Lubyanka is purely educational. <laughs> right.
0: Okay. Well then Robert, thank you very, very much for, for being a guest. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. This was a, a very nice conversation and a flashback to <laughs> to my youth.
1: Well, I'm glad to say that. By the way, I was looking at some of your podcasts and did I see something about the NASA's Sophia 747?
0: Yes, I um the the German part of Sophia is located in Stuttgart where I where I live and I spent a week in Palmdale flying on two of their of their science missions.
1: Wow. Well, um Sophia comes from the Kuiper Airborne Laboratory yes. and that is very much like the Cobra Eye. So Ah. You can put that in your, your, your brain and say, ah, mm-hmm. I, I flew a civilian Cobra I mission.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the telescope is a bit bigger, but uh, the, right. the, in in Sofia, 2.7 meters now.
1: Right, and we did not have a telescope. We had an IR sensor that was uh, super cooled. In fact, when it was on the ground, it had to have liquid nitrogen to cool it. Well,
0: I mean, this is an IR telescope, and they do have liquid nitrogen in the instruments to cool the sensors. Oh,
1: Okay, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I didn't, didn't fully understand that it was… I, there we go.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, that's why they need the airplane to go high above the water in the atmosphere, right? That's what you want to do for IR right. as opposed to uh, visible astronomy.
1: Exactly. And, in fact, the I the was the same thing. We actually had to climb uh, to 4.1 for our missions, which was higher than 3.6 for the, the ball.
0: Yeah, it's exactly the same altitude the SOFIAs try to get uh, once, they run, once they've burned a little bit of fuel and can actually get there.
1: Right, it it was tough for the X model. We were much lighter than the S, and the X really struggled to get up to that height and and stay there. It waffled, mm-hmm. so it was not for amateurs. Let's put it that mm-hmm.
0: way. Yeah, the the Sofia guys told me that they have um, together with um, Boeing and I guess Pratt and Whitney came up with uh, custom. Um, basically, they're trading engine lifetime for performance. Right? Oh, neat! So they can get high enough.
1: Wow. Amazing what people can do. uh,
0: Yes, and it was a really amazing week. That was a highlight.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for telling me that. I I enjoy hearing it.
0: There's eight more hours in the podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll look forward to that. All right. All right. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao.
0: All right. So that's it for this episode. Thank you very much, Robert, for being a guest. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, listeners, you might want to check out his book about the KC-135. It's, of course, linked from the show notes. And there is another recommendation I have. If you start Googling for some of the aircraft and, for example, try to find the Lysa N, make sure you include enough aviation-related keywords into the Google search, like, for example, KC-135, to get to the (laughs) desired result. Um, Yeah. Uh, What else? Um, Hmm. I should probably remind you uh, to please go to iTunes and the other places to rate Omega Tau. Um, It's always good if we get more visibility um, by, you know, hopefully showing up in some of the charts. And that has to do with listeners gained and that in turn has to do with reviews that make people listen to Omega Tau. Apart from that, I'm looking forward to your feedback about this and other episodes. And uh, hmm, probably going to talk to you in about two weeks. Bye. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludewig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google Plus and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0 This means that you can freely share the content but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works You always have to attribute the source omegataupodcast.net Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine of course For more details on the license see creativecommons.org Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time